Well, it's nice to be back. Uh, I did watch online while I was traveling and uh, missed, missed being here among you, but the Lord was really good to us. Uh, Thursday morning, about 5.15, uh, my comrade and, and I were getting ready to come back, come home, catch our flight, three, three flights in a row, and we got stuck in the elevator of the hotel. All our bags were on our way to the airport. It's early in the morning, trying to check in uh, in a relatively dangerous place. And we were thinking, oh, no, we're going to miss our flight because we're stuck in this elevator between two floors. So we started praying and saying, Jesus, you have all the keys even to this door, so please send the key to this door. And pretty soon a maintenance man came about half an hour later uh, with a special key to open the door halfway between two floors, and we climbed out and pulled our suitcases out. And the Lord was just reminding us that he's, he's our good shepherd. Uh, he got, got us on our knees there right at the beginning of our trip. I uh, was able to spend two days with our worker in Turkey, who was, has been recovering from three months in prison in a, a hostile country to the gospel, and this, the time with him was precious. I recorded about two hours of his testimony of how he was taken captive. They, they took him captive because they thought he was a spy, and uh, he was able to make friends with his interrogators. He said he just became really good friends with these guys who would meet with him for about two hours every other day and ask him lists and lists and lists of questions, repeat the questions to try to see if he'd change his answer and discover what in the world he was doing there. Uh, and in the end, I think they really believed that he was actually what he said he was, which was just uh, researching religious sites and meeting people and talking about religion uh, for the glory of God. And they released him. Uh, so he's now changing countries, not, not going home. I mean, he, he's going to spend a little short time at home, but ready to go again. Single man. And uh, the Lord is really using him to make friends in the gospel. That's really the mission, you know, is to go out and in the love of God, make friends for ourselves, spending our time and energy and resources. I hope that's what you're doing too. Uh, and then we were, I was at a retreat uh, with the team uh, working among the Yazidi that we've talked about and some of our very own from here at Calvary are there. Uh, and it was, it was good, you know, it was just on the heels of this horrible earthquake, so everybody was shaken. One of them was having to move their living situation because even 500 kilometers away, the building had been so compromised that she didn't feel safe staying there. Um, so there was some significant trauma. They said it took them two or three days to feel like the world wasn't shaking still because uh, it was quite a, quite a situation. Uh, there are some partners that we can help uh, with funds. If you have, are moved to help someone who survived the earthquake, we can send those to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who are responding. And this will be a long, long uh, project for rebuilding, as you've likely seen uh, on the, the reports. But let's go to the Word. We've been talking about Second Peter under the title of Escaping Corruption, the letter of Second Peter written to all of those who have been given like precious faith, he says. Uh, my title today is Established in the Truth, um, and the, the subtitle would be The Majestic Glory of God's Beloved Son. So we've read the story of the transfiguration because in the three verses that we focus on this morning, Peter refers to that experience, and I want us to look at what actually happened there with Peter, James, and John on the mountain of transfiguration. But let's quickly review first. Uh, I think we have that on the... Oh, sorry, my... my uh, remote wasn't turned on. Here we go. Precious faith received. 
I hope you've received that faith, that God's given you confidence that the Bible is true, His Son is the Savior of the world, and your Savior, your individual Savior, as you trust Him for forgiveness. Precious promises believed. And Peter seems to say that through the faith in the Word of God, through His promises, God transforms us. We live differently if we believe the promises of God. Uh, verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter 1 are, are key. This is a key passage in this whole letter. Uh, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence or virtue. Think about that as we look at the Mount of Transfiguration. God has called us to His glory. He's called us to be like Him. He's called us not to fall short of His glory anymore, but to live a life worthy of His glory by His grace. And then verse 4, uh, by these, by the glory and excellence, uh, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Then he says in verse 5 that we're to make every effort. And we're supposed to make every effort in two ways. One, to add to this saving faith we've received seven things. Can we read them together? Let me remind you of them. See if you can do it without reading. You add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. In the first service, little young Thomas Marcus was able to quote all of those from memory. And I asked him yesterday, I said, do you remember those seven things we're adding to our faith? He said, yeah, I can say them. So I said, would you say them in church tomorrow? So he got to say them this morning. I didn't prepare any of the rest of you, so I decided not to put you on the spot. Uh, but I believe it is my job, and it is our job as a body, to remind each other of these things. So Peter says, make every effort to do these things, to remember these things, and then to remind each other of them. He says, I'm making all this effort. I'm being diligent to remind you so that when I die, when I put off my body, you will still remember. Well, here we are, 2,000 years later, still reading this precious letter from our Apostle Peter and remembering that we are to live worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if, you, have, if you, uh, you keep your finger in Matthew 17, if you're still there, but turn over to 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. This is our passage for this morning's message. Here, here it is in the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you have another version, that's a good thing uh, because you can compare how the translations may differ. This is what uh, the verses say. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Let's pray one more time. Lord, this is your word. It's alive, it's active. It doesn't return without doing the work for which you sent it, and we believe it. And so I pray that it would transform us from glory to glory, more and more like you, as we believe and obey the truth. 
In the name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen. You know, one of the most amazing things about Jesus is that he's so normal. Jesus was a normal man. Most people didn't recognize that he was God incarnate because he looked like a guy from Nazareth or Bethlehem or Galilee. His own neighbors said, well, isn't this Mary's son that grew up right here? That encourages me because so often life just seems so normal. I don't see any bright lights or feel any warm fuzzies. You just go on and believe. And Peter is reminding us here that this has not been made up. Paul reminded us of who Jesus is in Colossians 1, 15 to 19. I just want to read this to remember that Jesus is not a normal man. He is fully human, but he... Are we moving forward yet? No, not quite yet. Did I do that, Susie? Okay. <laughs> Colossians 1, 15 to 19, if you're taking notes, this is, this is part of the majesty and glory that Peter is talking about in Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This normal-looking guy is actually the creator and sustainer of the world, dressed in a body like us so that he could die for our sins and so that we could come close to him. When he says for at the beginning of verse 16, I think he's pointing back to the phrase in verse 12, I know you know these things and are established in the truth. That's where the title of my thoughts come from. Because I think the for at the beginning of verse 16 is pointing back, since you know these things, since you're established, you're rooted in the, the reality of Christ's identity for your own salvation, I want to tell you that we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We, the apostles, we, those who proclaimed, who made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cleverly devised myths. Peter's writing about 30 years after Jesus died and went to heaven. So by then, it could already look like a myth. Well, did this really happen or is this just a a story that people tell. My time among the Yazidi people taught me that they have some pretty cleverly devised myths. You can see how hard it is to talk to them. They, they believe that the earth was once flooded by a worldwide flood, that all the animals and humans were saved in a boat, which sprung a leak. And the snake plugged the hole in the boat and saved the world. And so they revere the snake. You can see how some people have tried to destroy them because they think they worship Satan. They believe that the, the Yazidi people themselves are the fruit of a union between Adam and an angel. 
because Satan tempted, tempted Adam to marry his own sister and he resisted Satan and an angel rewarded him and the, the Yazidi are the descendants of that angel and Adam. They believed that their holy book wrote all these stories but that it was illegal to copy it and it got lost. And so there is no holy book. You have to trust what the elders teach you. And they also believe that you're not allowed to read other books, especially the Bible, which has words like Satan and sin in them, because if you read those words, they contaminate you. You can see the cleverness of the enemy devising these myths, which have a flavor of the truth, and yet keep them from hearing the truth that would save them. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 4, Warn them, Timothy, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stewardship of what? Stewardship of the gospel. Paul's talk to Timothy is always about being a good steward of what we've been entrusted, which is the true story of the coming of Jesus. This is what Peter's saying he made known to them. We didn't follow cleverly made myths. We made known to you the power and coming of Jesus Christ. Power and coming. The power of the incarnation, redemption, crucifixion, resurrection, all of those elements of the story of salvation become the gospel which saves us. There are cleverly devised myths that we are also tempted to follow. I wrote a few of these down. Maybe you have some ideas of others. Rich people are happier than poor people. That's a myth. It's not true. Beautiful people make better spouses. If we could take from the rich and give to the poor, everybody could be equal and share nicely and we'd all be happy. How about this one? I heard this actually from a, a young man on Paulista when we were evangelizing one uh, day in Faith Over Fear, and we were asking him about the political movement that he was supporting, and he, he said basically this, the native peoples were happy and healthy before Europeans took their land away. If we gave the land back, they would be happy again and restore the rainforest. Cleverly devised myths. And here's one that hits a little closer to home. The news that I listen to is unbiased. I hope you don't believe that. See, these guys, Peter, James, and John, were, according to Peter, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter is grounding what he teaches in fact. This happened. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. We, Peter, James, and John, were chosen by Jesus to have the veil pulled open a little bit. First John is what, how John talks about it. Here's what he says in First John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is saying the same thing as Peter's saying. This is all based on something we saw, we touched, we lived with him, we walked with him, he ate with us. It's true. So you ask, 
then why doesn't Jesus just show himself to everybody? I think there's only one good question, answer to that question. And that is because faith is worth it to God. He didn't even take all the 12 up with him. He chose three. And he told them to be quiet until after the resurrection, and then they proclaimed his true identity that they had seen on the mountain. Think about this. Peter, to show his readers the majesty of Jesus, could have chosen the huge catch of fish that he saw in Luke chapter 5. He could have chosen people raised from the dead, the multiplication of the fish and bread that he was right there handing it out, trying to see it multiply. He could have told any number of stories, he chooses the Mount of Transfiguration where God pulled back the veil and showed just a glimpse of who Jesus really, really was. Some of you are probably aware that there's a revival of some sort going on at Asbury College and Seminary in uh, Kentucky. Students gathered for a chapel and there was a simple message on letting your love be sincere and confessing when it wasn't and asking for help. And the students began to come forward and confess. And they're still going, going on three weeks. I believe there's some of that that is in God's will and that the Lord truly is using it and moving students to repentance. Seems like it's true to some level. Reminds me of a move of God that happened at our a church we were part of in Florida, 1995. Uh, people began to come every night asking uh, the doors to be open so that we could have prayer ministry and, and invite people in. And for, for nine months, there were nightly services of uh, preaching the word, worshiping, prayer ministry, confession of sin, uh, returning to uh, marriages that had been estranged, people coming to faith in Christ for nine months. It was delicious. There was a weight of God's presence in the place that when you got out of work at 5 o'clock, you wanted to get something to eat quickly and get to church because you wanted to be in God's presence. You wanted to worship Him until 2 in the morning with everybody else that was there. It's wonderful. But it didn't last. We moved on. We got actually sent out to Brazil right out of the midst of that. And you think back and think, okay, how did that feel again? Where was... Where was the truth in that? There was some error. It wasn't, all, it wasn't all good. But I'm convinced that God gives us glimpses and gives the church glimpses so that then by faith we can carry on rooted in what the Scripture says has truly happened. Peter is about to put off his body. He's about to die. And he's making every effort to ensure that we don't forget that the Bible isn't a fairy tale. Uh, if, you, if you have kids and you don't know about Colin Buchanan, look up Colin Buchanan on, online on Spotify or something. He's a, a, an Australian children's music writer. And he has a great song called Jesus Ain't No Fairy Tale, where he compares all the fairy tale stories, but then he comes back to the Bible and says, it's true. It really happened. This is, this is real. Jesus is truly God incarnate. So Peter says he makes known to them through preaching, through teaching, through living together, through sharing life, through discipleship, two things, the power of Jesus and the coming of Jesus. Likely this was the first coming. So teaching them about the incarnation, about Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection and even ascension. 
mean, sometimes we, don't, we forget about the ascension and how marvelous it was to see this normal guy float up into a cloud and say, just like I'm going, I'll come back. Peter had all of those details firsthand, and he made it known to the church. The power of Jesus and the coming of Jesus are the gospel that Paul says in, in Romans 1 is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Transformed more and more into his image. It's the power of Jesus for resurrection, for transformation, for new birth, and for fruit that lasts. 1 Peter 1.8 talks about this faith. Remember when we went through 1 Peter uh, last semester, and Peter says, though you have not seen him, 1 Peter 1.8, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter's saying, I saw him, John saw him, James saw him, but not everybody sees him. And I'm telling you that it's not a myth. It's the truth. And if you believe it, it can change you. Remember Thomas? Didn't believe until he put his finger in the holes of the nails. And, and, and Jesus says to him, you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. That's us, friends. That's us saying this letter is true. Peter really did see this. And it changes you if you believe it. Verses 17 and 18 point back to what we read, what uh, Jose read from Matthew 17. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him <clears throat> by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Let's go to Matthew 17, and uh, as we move toward an application, just look at this version of this story. It's in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Matthew's version tells us that Peter and James and John, his brother, uh, went up the mountain led by Jesus, and he calls it a high mountain. Tradition says this is Mount Tabor, which was about 1,800 feet. That's 600 meters above sea level, so not really that high. Because of this high mountain phrase, some think that this could have been Mount Hermon, which was much taller. But whichever way it was, whichever mountain it was, it's not important because it's not, they didn't choose to include it in the text. It was a hike. So I want you to think about Peter, James, and John hiking up a mountain with Jesus, probably on a hot, sunny day. Who knows what time it was. Took time. They talked. They visited. Maybe they joked. Got sweaty. But at some point, Jesus is transfigured. It says he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. So this is the first time that Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus for his divine nature. I don't know how it happened. I, I, I sat with this for a while this week and thought, was it a split second? Did the light just suddenly come on? Did it start glowing the, the higher they got, sort of glowing more and more? Were they having a conversation and they suddenly looked at Jesus and he's like shining in a way they can't even look at his face because it's as bright as the sun? We don't know. 
What we do know is that God chose these three apostles to see Jesus in a bit of his glory so that they could tell us. Suddenly there were two other guys with them, and we don't really know how Peter, maybe it was name tag Sunday, right? Because Peter had never seen Moses and Elijah before, but somehow he knows this is Moses and Elijah who represent the law and the prophets. So the entire Old Testament is really wrapped up in these two figures who wrote the Pentateuch. Moses wrote the whole first five books, most of the first five books of the Bible. And Elijah is a a major part of the prophets. And so Jesus is there with these two guys. They're talking. Luke says they're talking about Jesus' departure. The, The word there is actually exodus. So how Jesus will take sin to the grave, be resurrected and ascended. And the apostles are watching this happen. And there's a phrase here in Matthew 17 where Peter says, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tenths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now that word good is so much bigger than good. It can be all kinds of things. Excellent, beautiful wonderfully pleasurable. There's all this uh, uh, sense of, I don't want to leave this place. The presence of God is what your soul longs for, my friend. Peter wanted to make it permanent, wanted to stay there. But inadvertently, Peter had lowered Jesus to the level of Moses and Elijah, hadn't he? We'll make three tents, one for each of you. And then we can worship at these three tabernacles and start a new religion with three people. And suddenly a myth was about to happen. And I think God the Father, in his zeal for the glory of his own Son, suddenly made his presence, which was there all along and is here right now, palpable, visible. It says that a bright cloud overshadowed, enveloped them. And a voice came out of the cloud. Mark says a voice from heaven. But Dallas Willard points out that the word heaven can be the heaven that the birds fly in. It doesn't have to be the heaven that the stars are in. It can be the heaven that's all around us. And this voice vibrates out of the molecules of air all around them and says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Basically saying, not Moses, not Elijah. Those guys have been fulfilled. The whole point of the law and the prophets was to point to the true power and coming of the Savior who is Jesus. And when they wake up, as though to underline that fact, they're looking at Jesus alone. And I think the lights had gone out. I think he'd gone back to being the full man that he was without the visible essence of his divinity in front of them. doesn't say But there's the message. Listen to Jesus alone. It's it's he that is the focus. He is the gospel. His power, his coming is what saves me and saves you. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard that voice, they fell on their faces and were terrified. I pray that we have the fear of God because of his word to us 
in some measure of that same terrified response. How do we apply these things to our lives? I think there are two questions that we need to ask ourselves in response to this short passage in Peter. Number one, are we established in the truth or are we following cleverly devised myths? I've asked myself that question as I've prepared for this morning, and I want you to ask that too. Are your thoughts rooted in the truth? Are you established, founded, built on the truth of the coming and power of Jesus and the promises of his word? Or have you slipped into a little bit of mythology that isn't scriptural? We're reading Job in our family devotions. By the way, what are you reading in your family devotions? I hope you're reading something. Fathers and mothers, make sure your children are hearing the truth because that's what establishes them in the truth and not in myths. We're reading through Job. And in Job, one of the obvious purposes of this horrendous story is to bust all kinds of myths about what happens to people who follow God. Job and his friends believe that righteous people have good stuff and bad people have bad stuff. It's all about karma. And God shows us very clearly that karma is not the truth. It's a myth. Because some really good people go through really, really hard stuff. Listen to what Job says in chapter 19. I read this just this morning, and the Lord prompted me to put it in my notes. I know. Now here's Job scraping his skin with a piece of broken pottery. And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another. That's the faith that hasn't seen yet, but believes you will. You will look in the face of your Savior, either as your righteous judge or as your friend, who says, well done, welcome home good and faithful servant. You believed to the end, though you have not seen. God is a myth-busting God. He busts my myths all the time. I'm tempted to believe myths. I'm tempted to believe that a good life is one with the most pleasure and the least pain. So safety first. The truth is, The only eternal pleasure is at God's right hand and reserved for those who will see him by holiness because without holiness, no one sees the Lord. I'm tempted to think that bad people have more fun. I was thinking this last night, driving home from Guadalupe after leaving Susana at the airport. Parties for carnival going on all the time. Wondering what goes on at those parties and why is it so fun? It just seems like they're really happy in there. And the Lord reminded me that's a myth. I have everything they want and more in Christ, in a faithful marriage, in a righteous lifestyle. I am the man that that Psalm 1 promises will be happy. Benaventurado, blessed, is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. It's a myth that bad people have more fun. It's a myth that when bad things happen to me, It's because I've done something wrong and I deserve to be punished. It's a myth. It's wrong. It's karma. It's not true. 
Or maybe God was just too busy to protect me, to notice that I was in, in pain. The truth is that all, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, and he never leaves me or forsakes me. And I want to be established on that truth when it's hard. I'm tempted to believe that once I'm saved, it's okay for me to do anything I want with my time and money, as long as I don't do bad stuff. The truth is there's a judgment coming. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. If I believe that truth, I will live differently. A couple more. Christians are all supposed to die old and healthy in their sleep. But sometimes God punishes us or Satan wins and we get sick or die early. It's not true. It's not true. God is sovereign. All things work together for good. None of the original apostles, except perhaps John, lived into old age or died a normal death. And here's one for us, Calvary. We're tempted to believe the myth that some people are super Christians who aren't tempted like normal people and don't sin or need others to help them. Only these people should be pastors and elders. I think sometimes we're tempted to look around for shining people, right? Transfigured people. Those perfect people that will be our elders that we don't have to, that don't need anybody's help and they can help all of us. It's not true. We're all sheep. And God has appointed some to be our deacons right now and he will appoint others to be our elders in the future and they will be sinners saved by grace just like us who need our prayer, who need our support, who need our encouragement and even our confrontation at times. Because it's not true that there are super Christians. We are all equal. There is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Are you established in the truth? The truth that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he died to save sinners, including you, and that he's coming back to judge everything by his grace. The second question I think we need to ask is, have we been transfigured? Am I becoming that shining figure that Jesus was? Where did I get this from? It's not in this text, but John says, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. All of us are being transformed from glory to glory by faith into his likeness. We've become participants of his divine nature. When you look at your life, your reactions, your words, your thoughts, and your desires, are you becoming more divine? Is Jesus gaining ground in your time, in your money, in your life? You know, it's a truism that caterpillars don't reproduce. Only butterflies lay eggs. So there are a lot of people that think they're Christians. They've convinced everybody else that they're a Christian, but they're just a caterpillar trying to fly. And we need to be transformed. The word for transfigured is the same word for metamorphosis. Jesus was transfigured, metamorphosed into who he is eternally. And that's what I want to be. And that's how you escape corruption. It's by God planting himself inside your body and mind and soul and becoming who he is in you, in your thoughts, in your desires. Have you been transfigured by the power 
and coming of Jesus. We must be born again. And I think we can turn that to each other and believe that no matter how fallible your spouse or your friend or your church, fellow church member is, they too are being transformed by grace into more and more glory. If you would just remember that that sister that annoys you so much has Jesus in her soul too and is becoming more like Jesus. And when you see her in heaven, you'll be tempted to worship because she'll be just like Jesus. I want to finish with that quote. Maybe, maybe you've heard this. It's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, which talks about a lot of these themes. He says this, Remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and corruption such as you now meet, such as you now meet only in a nightmare. Whether you are in Christ or whether you're not in Christ decides which you will be. Let's pray. Father, we believe we are here not to waste time with a religion that is a myth, but to readjust our thoughts, our words, and our actions so that we might become participants of your divine nature through faith in your good and precious promises. How we long to experience the pleasures at your right hand, the joy, the fullness of joy forevermore. But we wait patiently, established in the truth, knowing that you will fulfill all of your promises for us in the fullness of time. Give us patience. Increase our faith. Teach us to love each other. And help us to make every effort to grow more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.